baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to the October 2020 edition of Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we're celebrating the International Space Station. And since it's the 20th anniversary of a continuous human presence in orbit, we're featuring astronauts who've lived and worked there, including Chris Hadfield, on the importance of fixing a toilet and coping with sweat. Well, imagine if it didn't fall down, but it flew off your body in all directions, depending on which way you flicked your wrist or or turned your head. Or, you know, that little sometimes droplet of sweat that's on the tip of your nose. Well, if you turned your head and whipped that at someone across the room, they do not want to be attacked by flying sweat. Coming up, we've got highlights from our past interviews with Scott Kelly, Katie Coleman, Luca Parmitano and Michael Fole. And we are joined live from Florida by NASA astronaut and artist Nicole Stott to guide us through what it's like to work, rest and play in an orbiting home with one of the best views in the solar system. Hi, Nicole. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, thanks. Happy to be here. Great. Now, you're an engineer. You've worked on the shuttle on the ground before joining the astronaut corps in 2000. You've flown two missions to the ISS on the shuttle. Today you're an artist. Have you ever discovered a view on Earth that's as beautiful as the one you've seen from orbit? Wow, it's, it is it is really hard to compare <laughs> the view <laughs> through the window of the space shuttle or the space station. It, it is incredible. But I'll tell you, I find myself looking around all the time now for little pieces of it, right? Like to, to kind of compare it to, I guess. Or when I go outside, I'm... I'm trying to find, and I have, I think, you know, that I think we're surrounded by just awe and wonder all the time. And we just have to open our eyes to look at it a little bit differently, right? And what we see through the space station windows just gives us a whole new perspective on it, for sure. You know, in this like glowing, all the colors you know Earth to be below you as a planet. Um, that certainly is, is a new perspective, but there's all these pieces of it around us every day. And I think that's what I'm really trying to do now is look at the nature and what surrounds me and with my feet planted on the, you know, sometimes barefoot in the grass thinking, holy moly, I am standing on a planet. That's pretty awesome. Love that. Well, let's go back to the origins of the International Space Station. Now, I was at the much-delayed launch of the first stage in 1998, and at the time, it was very much seen as a a troubled project with plenty of people who thought it was a waste of money. But two years later, the first permanent crew arrived, and Sergei Krikalev got to turn on the lights. Together with Bob Cabana, we float together into the first module and then to the second one, switching on lights it was um, very unusual and very emotional because we knew that this uh, hardware is going to fly for many years and for me i knew that i'm going to be in little more than a year on the station again but not as a guest not as visitor but as a member of long duration crew Nicole, when when you arrived on the space station, we're assuming the lights were on. <laughs> what what was that like to actually enter it for the for the first time? What were your impressions? It, it was really surprising to me the the first time 
arriving at the station. Uh, of course, I, I flew on a space shuttle, so we had docked and gone through all the procedures to, you know, equalize the pressure and so we could open up the hatches and and float through. And I think the surprise to me was how familiar it felt, having never been there, but the the smells even and you know what you were seeing around you was so much like the simulators that we use, which made me realize how good they are, <laughs> you know, really how good the the simulators that we train in are. And of course we were floating and, you know, and things were different, but I just had this kind of sense of familiar, which was, was comforting and nice. And then there was this like, I don't know, almost this, this mission to this adventure of discovering all the things that were different about it. I've been in the the, the full size simulator in in Houston, and, and I wonder when you went into the real thing for the first time, were things the wrong way up? Because obviously on Earth you can't simulate the sense of no gravity around you. I mean, was that disorientating that suddenly you think, well, hang on, this should be the floor? <laughs> well, I don't know if we did it on purpose or what, but the way that that the the space shuttle docked and kind of the alignment as we came in, as you floated in. Uh, where your feet were was kind of what was called the deck, which is what you would, you know, think of as the floor when you're in the simulator. Everybody just kind of floated in in this, you know, this same direction. And so the orientation seemed right. But then once you're in it, it's, it's strange because you go from a relatively small volume, right? Inside the space shuttle, which in the grand scheme of things, I would say is quite spacious. <laughs> In, in the world of spacecraft, but then you float into the interior volume of the, the space station and you can just freely move in all these directions. And the people that you're, you know, the crew that's already there, they're all floating in different directions. So I think that's what's a little bit disorienting at first is like, wow, this is wide open, almost feels like the Grand Canyon. And look at all these people that are just not with their feet kind of floating towards the deck. Of the, of the station. I've watched probably same as Richard, you know, I've, I've watched quite a few of those live pictures when a new crew goes on board. Cause it's, I don't know, there's something exciting about watching I, I've it. commentated yeah, for, on, it, on that and commentated for 45 minutes when Tim Peake entered the space station. <laughs> my finest hour in broadcasting <laughs> of just astronauts' bottoms floating in front of the yeah, hatch. Yeah. They, they never open it. They never open it on time. But what I want to know, and I know this is a very trivial question, but it just has always made me wonder is that you we always see the astronauts come through but not the luggage and I know that you know you have you have, you have your own clothes you have your own personal effects you know once the cameras are off do you have the equivalent of a like wheelie wheelie suitcase that you bring in or is it in a canister you know how do you then transfer these things you know, there is a lot of that afterwards and it's they're usually these they're these fabric bags like you know, cubic kind of shaped, different sizes, depending on what you're bringing over. So on my first flight, I got there as on a space shuttle with a space shuttle crew and then got to hang out, you know, live and work on the station for a little over three months before coming home with a, a different space station or space shuttle crew. And a lot of my stuff, actually the majority of my things had already arrived, was there waiting for me in these bags. Um, so that was kind of neat. And then as, as space shuttle crews, we had these little boxes inside of the shuttle that had all of our clothes or personal items or the equipment that we would need. 
And we never really had to pull that out and move it around. It was like we had our own, you know, um, dresser drawer <laughs> in the <laughs> shuttle with our stuff. But for for station crew members, yeah, there was there were things floating back and forth. Um, and and did you have a a, a sort of tradition? Because I know speaking to um, Helen Sharman, who was the first British astronaut, that when she went on board Mir, for instance, they had a thing where you had to when a new crew member of a crew came up, you had to dress for dinner. And, you know, it was, it was a sort of, you know, it could be a little dinner jacket or a dress or a bow tie and things like that. Were there sort of traditions as well to welcome the new crew on, on the space station? Uh, there were. I mean, one of the, one of the things that they do both coming and going, it's kind of a Navy tradition. You know, they ring the bell when the, you know, when guests have arrived or when a crew has arrived or a crew is departing. One of the, the traditional things is, and it's not like being, bringing a big bag over or anything, but it's we as the, the visiting, I guess, space shuttle crew, uh, would bring a gift, you know, bring gifts for the, for the station crew. And usually what that is, is a, one of the crew shirts. So, you know, the kind of traditional shirts you see with the patch on the front and we would exchange those and the station would have them for us as well. You know, then usually that first, you know, first time you're gathering together for, for dinner or whatever meal it would be, um, everybody wears the shirts and, you know, to say thank you. Now, in 2015, we made a radio show for Project Everyone, which was set up by uh, filmmaker Richard Curtis to highlight the United Nations sustainability goals. East astronaut Samantha Cristoretti was the presenter and a number of astronauts took part, including NASA's Katie Coleman. Now, Katie flew on two missions, spending a total of 180 days in space. She's a, a polymer chemist by training, like Nicole. Um, she straddles both the arts and science. Um, this is Katie talking about the personal effect on her after living and working on the space station. Looking back, it, it's actually becomes very clear that the Earth is one place. It, it's almost, for me, hard to feel like a citizen of a single country after having spent time on the space station, looking out and seeing our, our beautiful planet, but also our very interesting and fascinating planet. And, and the thought of having a border between one place and another, or that one, one place should decide things for, for everyone else. Our space station is actually, I like to think of it as a blueprint of, as a sort of optimal design for international cooperation. We have an international team. We do research that comes from many different countries and actually benefits the, the whole Earth. And we learn to work together, in, in, and it's not easy work. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest things we can get from the space station is that working together as many different countries is not easy, but it's essential. And it becomes really clear that every minute up there on that space station counts and that every minute should be used either to be human or to do really good research. And so we really have to learn how to work together. And it's not just the six people living up on the space station, usually three Russians and then some combination of the United States, of Japan, of, of Europe, of Canada. It's not just our six people, but every day, over and over again, hundreds of people from around the world are making the decisions that actually make the plan that we six astronauts work from. Looking down at the Earth from space, it becomes very clear that we, we have some serious problems down here that it's going to take all of us to fix, and that it, it can't be just one kind of person trying to fix those problems, and that we, we really actually need, in order to fix 
things here on our, on our Earth, and, and also in order to make the journey to Mars, we can't do it with what we know right now. And we need to actually make sure that people know how to innovate, that people know how to, to figure out things that they just didn't know before. And the way to do that is together. We also got onto the subject of music and its importance in space, as Katie took a penny whistle and several flutes onto the space station. I've always thought of music as just a very human thing and almost a human form of communication. I, I like to play the flute. I'm not the most amazing flute player in the whole world, but I really, I really love it. And I love to play with people. And I don't actually often play by myself except to practice, which I just know I kind of have to do. And so what I did up on the space station was I brought uh, recordings of my band, Back on Earth, happens to be made up of mostly astronauts. Chris Hadfield is our singer, songwriter, guitar player. But I brought a rec a recordings of our band up there with me, and then I would put them on the computer and have them blaring out in the cupola, and I would be playing my flute, looking out at the Earth, sometimes in darkness, sometimes uh, during the, the Earth, uh, our Earth Day. And it just was a, a wonderful way to sort of be together with people that I couldn't be with right then. And in fact, we actually had a sort of uh, a live concert, um, my band and I, where electronically it's a little bit difficult to do just to play together. And so what happens is they have to not listen to me, but I listened to them and played along, and then they could hear the, the tape uh, afterwards. But it was really just wonderful to spend. It was like spending a Friday evening with your best friends playing music. And, and music is something that I think is just inherent in, in, in human nature. People, as soon as you give them any kind of object, they're going to make music. And I'm especially proud of some of the things that I did up there because I think they represent the fact that our space station is an outpost of our Earth, and yet it's still very connected to that Earth. Katie Coleman on the importance of music still resonating today with so many musicians and creators who are struggling here in the UK and probably elsewhere as a result of the pandemic. Nicole, as somebody who loves art, does that, you know, the importance of art chime with you in, in terms of how Katie felt that music was so important and to be creative on the space station? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I had the chance to paint while I was there. I did a watercolor painting. And, you know, when I think about it now, I, the thing that comes to mind is like, wow, you know, we're putting the human in human spaceflight. And we don't just work there now. We're, I mean, we're living there for, you know, significant extended periods of time in space. You know, not to mention that, you know, like in this celebration of 20 years of continuous human presence there, but for the longest time, the, the human astronauts have bring it, been bringing things they love to space. Music, for sure. You know, on the space station right now, there's a guitar and a keyboard. And one of the recent crews had like a, a jam session. It was really very fun to watch and listen to. And Drew Foistel's playing the guitar. And one of the crew members is using one of the solid waste containers as like a bongo drum. And there was a pan flute, I think, and the keyboard. I mean, it was really just nice to see it and to know that they weren't just doing that as a show, that each of them are probably playing those instruments independently as well while they're there. And 
my friend Karen Nyberg, who sewed. I mean, she quilted while she was in space and created a little stuffed animal out of scrap material for her son. And poetry's getting written. And of course, photography. I mean, even if you weren't a photographer before you got to space, you become one because you just want to capture this experience you're having, you know, with the view out the window or with what's going on inside the station. I think it's just a part of who we are. I think you're absolutely right. What about the practicalities of actually painting in space? Because I've done watercolors and, you know, you need water and we see what the little droplets <laughs> of water quite, do in space. It's quite messy on earth, isn't it? I was going to say, yes. yes that's, <laughs> I tend to get it all over my hands and on the whatever surface I'm doing anyway. Did you have to take up some sort of repurposed paintbrush? Because I know you can get some which have water in the the handle effectively. You know, I don't think they had the water in the handle ones when I, when I <laughs> flew in 2009 is when I I took up the watercolor kit and you know, I wish there was like this whole uh, that I could say there was this whole method to the madness, right? You know, <laughs> oh, you know, I was I mean the watercolors really were they were the most compact. They were the little solid cubed color, mm-hmm. you know, and um and they were in this tiny little plastic box and they seemed the simplest to bring and you know oils you wouldn't be allowed to bring oil because I'd talk about messy that would be super messy but because we have to have things that are non-toxic you know that you got to be able to clean it out of the air and it can't really smell and so oil paints wouldn't have been good and acrylics would have been messy even if they were non-toxic because think about it you'd have to have like a brush for every color and cleaning up the brushes would be a real pain because you don't have running water, right? Yeah. The watercolors in hindsight were really the best move and the brush cleaned up easily. Um, you couldn't dip your brush into a cup of water because there aren't cups of water, right? So I would squirt out tiny little balls of water from my drink bag and bring the tip of the brush over to those as they were floating. It was really cool to, to watch the whole thing. And if I had been smart, I would have activated my brain cells and videotaped the whole thing. I, yeah. I think it would have been just such a wonderful way to show what living in space in general is like, about how organized you have to be, about how everything floats and is different. But I didn't. I <laughs> just watched it myself. And it's lovely and- that you found a way because yeah. that also shows humanity in terms of ingenuity, doing something that creative that you wanted to do. Well, and I think that's exactly it. You know, it, what, whether somebody likes what I painted or not, or thinks it's, you know, artistically creative or not, I, I'm not all that worried about it. I think it's really such a wonderful way to communicate just the experience and how things happen there. And that, yeah, you know, Things are different when you're working in microgravity. Everything is a little bit different, but it's just different. It doesn't mean it's more difficult. We figure out how to do it. Painting in space was fun, watching the little ball of water move like onto the tip of the brush or the colored water as I had to drag it across the paper. Because if I actually touched the brush to the paper, the whole blob of colored water just moved all at once, <laughs> you know? And so there's a whole new just process and way about it, but it was not more difficult. It was just different. Now, the other thing uh, Katie was talking about was this, you know, idea that you can't see borders. And I know, uh, Nicole, we've, we've spoken to, uh, uh, and you're a friend of Rusty Swikehart, yeah. uh, Apollo astronaut, who really was one of the first to articulate uh, this idea of 
of no borders. And I wonder, does the space station, obviously you can't see borders from space, but does it feel different on the space station, particularly as you're working alongside, you know, colleagues from Japan and, and Russia and Europe? Do, do you lose that sense of, of nationality? In, in a big way, you do, because you know you're one crew, right? It's not like the Russians are down in the Russian segment and they can't cross the hatch into the U.S. segment unless we give permit. I mean, it's it's absolutely one crew, one station working together, you know, for the, the mission, you know, that you have during that time frame. And all in line with this, I think, greater good mission of the station program itself, which is you know, ultimately about improving life on earth. And um, that's such a great thing to be a part of. And then when you do look out the window and your heads are kind of, you know, bopping together as you're, you know, all trying to get that view. Yeah. This sense of, of oneness, of unity, of interconnectivity, I, I th- there's no denying it. And I don't know, it's, it's one of the greatest joys of being there, I think is, is, really appreciating that perspective and understanding that if any border matters at all, it's just that one that's the thin blue line that, you know, blankets the whole planet and protects us all. That's the border that matters. <laughs> the one we need to be protecting too. Now, we also heard uh, already about uh, Chris Hadfield, Canadian Space Agency astronaut. And we all know after his Major Tom singing went viral that he played the guitar while on the space station. We met him when he was in London and he featured in our January 2014 podcast. At that time, he'd not long written An Astronaut's Guide to Living in Space. And he began by surprising us when we asked him, whether he missed space or not. I really don't miss it. I, I, we worked really hard. I flew in space three times. I, I uh, filled the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth every single time. And, and so I came back from space just feeling tremendously satisfied with the whole experience. And it's like building a... I don't think the, the upper reaches of a wall miss the lower reaches of the wall. That's just a foundation that lets you get to where you are. So I... I don't actually spend any time reminiscing and missing. Not even about the view, because well, I can imagine you're not missing the toilet. Yeah, but, but I, the, view. I, I, the view is internalized. The view is now part of me. The view is something that, that became who I am. The view is in my head all the time. So I, I don't miss it. it it's now uh, part of a great way for me to appreciate the world. Can I ask you about the toilets then? There's one incident you <laughs> there's one incident you describe in your book where you are fixing a malfunctioning toilet, taking it apart while at the same time trying to coordinate a spacewalk of two of your colleagues. Just to, to, tell us about that. That was my proudest day in space. In fact, I was sending Roman and uh, Pavel, Roman Romanenko and Pavel Vinogradov out on their uh, spacewalk which is very painstaking, and um, and the consequences of mistake can be really bad. So you have to be really dogmatic and careful. And, and you do it in Russian, of course, because you're talking to cosmonauts, but also you're talking to mission control in Moscow. They are specialists down there. So it's a very mentally demanding time. Well, just before they got ready for their spacewalk, the toilet died in the American segment, and I was the only guy there to fix it. Everyone else was uh, was either in a part of the space station that was blocked off for the spacewalk or they were doing an experiment they couldn't extract themselves from. So I, if I didn't fix the toilet, it wasn't getting fixed. And that's not a good way. To, you need a toilet whether you want it or not. So I would, I was taking the whole toilet apart. I was elbows deep in the, in the innards of a, uh, a fairly complex, non-gravity driven, non-water driven toilet. 
and rebuilding the uh, separator compressor. And then the Russians would call, so I'd clean up myself and wipe the toilet off me and then go whipping down to the other end of the station and, and talk with the guys and do the next step and clean up the hatches and close up and then back to the toilet and back and forth. It took about three hours. But at the end of three hours, uh, the guys were safely outside. Their suits weren't leaking. We hadn't missed one step in the procedure. Everything was good. And I threw the switch on the wall, and the toilet went which was a great noise to hear. And so for me, of all days, that was my, my space highlight of six months in, the or, in uh, orbiting the world. Is this why your sort of uh, engineering, mechanical engineering background came into its fall? Uh? Well, I grew up on a farm, actually. And, uh, you know, having to fix a machine on your own is what farmers do. Your tractor breaks at the back of the fields and, and all you have is a set of ice grips and a slot screwdriver and you've got to figure out how to make it work again. And so... Uh, a little practical, what my dad would say, thinking with your hands. If you can think with your hands and make things work, that's a really nice trait to have developed. And I think I learned a lot of it, not just as an engineer, but uh, but growing up on a farm. I don't want to dwell on personal hygiene for the interview, but there is <laughs> one is other incident I am going to anyway. There was another incident that you described uh, the amount of exercise you had to take and, and being on the treadmill and doing all this exercise every day to you know, keep fit to make, make sure that when you get back to earth, you're, you're, you can stand up. Right. And you talked about sweat and you had to be really careful that you don't hurt other people with your sweat. Well, think what happens, anybody who's been on a treadmill or, or a elliptical or lifted for a while, or even just stood at the beach in the hot sun and you look down and your sweat actually drips on the ground around you, or, you know, or you have to wipe the handlebars off. Well, imagine if it didn't fall down, but it flew off your body at all directions, depending on which way you flicked your wrist or, or turned your head. Or, you know, that little sometimes droplet of sweat that's on the tip of your nose. Well, if you turned your head and whipped that at someone across the room, they do not want to be attacked by flying sweat. So you actually float a towel in the air next to you. So it's hovering like a like an attendant jellyfish next to you. And and you regularly grab the towel and just wipe the sweat off your body and then let go of the towel and let it float next to you again because you don't want to get to the point where this this gooey mass of sweat suddenly burps off your body and goes and uh, splats onto someone else. Right from the the first pages of your book, you've spent your life training effectively or pre- preparing to be an astronaut which i like <laughs> i like that singleness of, of well vision. i count myself hugely lucky i i i love learning things um I, I thought a long time ago when someone offers to teach you something for free take them up on it you know you're going to learn something and then you'll have more skills and uh, you never know when those skills are going to come in handy when i was a teenager i was in a program called air cadets great program to teach you to fly but i also used to uh, shoot a rifles competitively on a range indoors just learning how to very carefully aim something and control your breathing to try and hit a target when i was docking with the russian space station mir 25 years later we use a handheld laser to try and measure the distance between the two vehicles absolutely critical for distance and speed and it's exactly the same and i never thought when i was learning as an air cadet to handle a, a 22 rifle that what i was really training for was to dock two spaceships together when someone offers to teach you something, take them up on it. Keep training and learning things your whole life. And uh, I, I'm now finished as being an astronaut, 35 years with the government, and I want to go back to school. You know, there's so many things I want to learn, all different. Kind, there's so much stuff in the world that I'm still an ignoramus about that, uh, that I, I just want to keep studying. Chris Hadfield. And like all our extracts, you can hear longer interviews in our back catalogue of Space Boffins podcasts on the Naked Scientists website. 
you might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. This is Space Boffins. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And our guest is former NASA astronaut Nicole Stott. Um, Nicole, Chris there was talking about how rifle shooting, you know, when he was young, helped years later when he was docking a spacecraft simply because he realised, you know, he, he was controlling his his breathing. So I wondered whether there was anything from your earlier life that had in any area that had unexpected benefits for when you became an astronaut and, and were living on the uh, space station? Well, you can't ask that question out of the blue. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty I sure know, Chris thought one, about that before. I think it's in the book. <laughs> um, yeah, he'd read the book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, unexpected. You know, for me, there was growing up flying, for sure, I, I think had some influence on whatever skill I might have had later as as an astronaut. I think at the time when I was learning to fly and enjoying all of that, I wasn't thinking about astronaut, right? It was just, okay, here's what you do, do to fly. Yeah. And then it just happens to work out beautifully to, to fit into it. But scuba diving, for sure, you know, there's there's something about like flying and diving that it's putting you in this place where you you're absolutely wanting to enjoy the the world around you what you're surrounded by but you also absolutely have to be completely situationally aware of how your equipment is performing and you know the, of the of the people that are with you around you and what's happening with them and and we have those words situational awareness that we use in space flight and and that happens in another uh, the kind of extreme environment stuff too. But I think when you go scuba diving, you're not really thinking about it that way, right? You're thinking about, oh, I want to experience the the sea life around me and what I'm going to see that's new. But always in the back of your mind, you're having to be aware of how your breathing equipment is functioning and, and all that. I think you've recovered yourself well there. I okay. think that's a really good right. answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wondered whether it had helped or, or, or even hindered that you'd worked on the space shuttle before you became an astronaut, because you kind of knew the engineering. I mean, I was always thinking back to the, the early 60s where the uh, Soviet Union first flew the their uh, three-man capsule and stuck one of the engineers in there, which guaranteed it worked. I mean, <laughs> did it help, did it help that you kind of knew how it all worked or did it was it more frightening that you kind of knew how it all worked and and what could go wrong I think it absolutely helped that I knew how it could work but I think it went beyond the hardware side of it I think it was for me the really comforting thing was that I had worked with the people who worked on it one of the things I like to say about them is that these are people who honestly, really and truly believe that the care and feeding of those spacecraft is their responsibility. And I saw it in every every place I worked 
uh, on the, the space shuttle program and the space station program, where these people are hands-on, the ones responsible for assembling and making sure that this hardware works, they, they believed it was their responsibility. So when I <laughs> was strapping in myself, that's what I was thinking about was all these people I personally knew and the ones that I didn't, but that that was, that was the way they felt. So that's, that's a reassuring feeling. Well, in the summer of 2015, we actually spoke to the space station, talked to cosmonaut Mikhail Konienko, both with and without a translator, and NASA's Scott Kelly, a few months into his one-month mission in space. One-month mission in space. A few months. I was going to say. Oh, it's one year mission. He wouldn't yeah. have been happy about that. Yeah. No, he wouldn't. No, he wasn't happy <laughs> with the, the thing of a year, was he? <laughs> <laughs> we, which we won't keep that bit in. Yeah, okay. we should do <laughs> Okay. I have you loud and clear. Welcome aboard the International Space Station. Thank you so much. You're both looking very fit and very good after four months in space. I, I wondered how you were both finding the, the one-year mission. You know, so far, so good. You know, being up here for a year is a long time, but, you know, we had both flown previously, so we sort of knew what we were getting into. The space station's an amazing place. We have, uh, you know, great uh, facilities and a lot of capability here. So, you know, I think we're both, and just speaking for Misha a little bit, both both optimistic that, uh, you know, we got over 200 days ahead of us, but uh, those will be, you know, smooth sailing. I think that space makes you look younger. <laughs> it's a joke, of course, but at the same time, we are exercising twice a day, and I can only confirm what Scott has just said. We are very optimistic, and I believe that after my one-year mission, I will be even in better shape than before my mission, since we're exercising regularly, and I hope that our mission will be very beneficial for those who will follow us, and we are very optimistic. I gather that before the mission, you both got on well with each other. Are you still friends? Absolutely, even more so now. I mean, you spend a lot of time up here together, and uh, that just builds bonds, you know, between us. It's a, uh, you know, it's a great place, the space station, to build relationships and international partnerships. That's one of the great things about this uh, space station is the international component to it. We are still friends and we'll be friends until, <laughs> until the end. <laughs> yeah. Are there any particular aspects of this flight that, that differ from the usual missions? Obviously, you've got a, a lot more going on it's a lot more about you this time and how you are performing you know because it's somewhat unique in regards to the the duration you know more than we've done previously on the space station i think you know if you compare our uh involvement in in the human um subject type of experiments misha and i certainly have uh more of that than i think maybe your average crew member might so you know there's that as aspect of it being up here for this length of time also has you involved in more things that we do on the space station, other science experiments and, uh, and such. We'll, throughout the course of the year here, we'll have 400 different science experiments going on. So, you know, our involvement will be, you know, bigger than, let's say, someone that here is here for a, a six-month stay. But uh, on the surface, though, you know, from a day-to-day -day perspective, our, our lives here are no different than any of the other crew members. 
And you're working together throughout this year. What does that show us about working together on Earth? I mean, is what you're doing in space something we can learn from? I, I think so. You know, this uh, space station, this neutral territory, so to speak, in a uh, very, very challenging environment gives us the opportunity to, to work on something that's, uh, you know, very important, very difficult, uh, you know, work with this international partnership. We've been doing this for over 15 years now, and it's, uh, you know, one of the great successes of the space station. We're getting great results now from the science we do. I think there's a lot to be learned from this uh, in uh, in many, many different ways. And, Scott, have you learned anything from the Russians? I learn stuff from the, these guys all the time. You know, they have a lot of experience. Their long-duration spaceflight experience is, is more extensive than ours. They do a lot, some things different. You know, they're they're more practical. You know, certainly their budget is less than, than what NASA has, so... It's great to see what they, they can achieve with uh, li- more limited resources than we have. It's uh, quite impressive. And, Michel, have you learned anything from working with the Americans? I have to say that there is a lot to learn from Americans, first of all. They're very specific. They're very thorough, especially in performing their tasks and objectives. And I believe there is still a lot to learn from our partners, and we are learning from each other every day. For example, I'm performing all my activities in the same efficient manner, in a very precise and accurate manner. And I believe this is very important here in space. They are very friendly, and I cannot say that I was angry or gloomy earlier, but our American friends are very friendly, so we're learning that from them as well. So, in brief, I can say that, yes, we have to learn from each other. Does it change your dreams at all when you when you sleep above the Earth? I had an interesting dream last night uh, that I remember, but I'm not going to share that with you. Uh, <laughs> in any case, I was in any case I was asked uh, after my last flight, "Hey, do you dream whether you're on Earth or you're in space?" And I actually couldn't remember. So now I write my dreams down, and uh, most of the time they're about being on Earth. You know, sometimes they're about being on the space station too so it's uh you know like a lot of people's dreams they're pretty weird thank you both very much for your time and good luck with the rest of your mission hey thank you our pleasure enjoyed talking with you today station this is houston acr thank you that concludes our event scott kelly when he was back on earth writing about his experience in a book called endurance uh, he talked about how he became disorientated in the dark during his uh, second spacewalk uh nicole you you've touched on spacewalks we talked about the the diving are, are they difficult i mean they, they kind of look effortless i'm guessing they're not effortless no they're not effortless i i think and, and it's the effortlessness um is more effortless <laughs> from a physical <laughs> standpoint, right? You can move in any direction you want. You can get yourself going very quickly, which you need to be careful about because, you know, while the suit and you don't weigh anything, there's still the mass of it and you got to figure out how to stop if you get moving really fast. It's, it's interesting to me because what's really difficult in the training in the pool, like how you move and get into a different position, um, 
does become easier in space. But I remember coming out of the airlock and looking around and it felt like we were sticking out at the end of like nothingness, right? Because through this little, it looks like this ginormous visor, right? But it really isn't. It's it's quite small. And so you're just seeing everything through that. And think about it. When you turn your head inside of that spacesuit, what you see is the side of the spacesuit. You got to turn your whole body to see what's to the left of you or to see what's to the right of you or down or up. And that's surprising for some reason. <laughs> when you get outside, you're like, wow, I thought I could just, I would just be able to see everything. And so as you move, that's what's happening all the time is you can see everything that's right in front of you. You can move yourself really easily, but to get a real idea of what's to the left, right, up or down of you, you've got to like make these major movements to do so. That was very surprising to me. And, you know, everything you're doing is with your hands, right? You're, there's nothing walk in spacewalk at all right? It's all crawl with your hands or move, you know, stuck into the end of the robotic arm, you're getting moved around, but you're not walking anywhere. It's funny, when you talked about the space helmet, I moved my head to the right and the left. And it sounded as though you had as well. I, I did. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah, I thought you had, because <laughs> I was doing exactly, um, exactly the same. I mean, we've, um, I mean, we've had uh, Kathy Sullivan on talking about her spacewalk and and also we've been to the uh neutral buoyancy unit the one that they have in in cologne where they do a lot of the training very similar obviously to what you what we've got in uh in houston and it's interesting because doing the spacewalk not we know that not all astronauts get to do that and not all astronauts have the stamina or endurance to be able to do that because it is difficult and you do it for hours and hours and hours on on end <laughs> inside you know this <laughs> this suit uh, thing i mean what 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 do you think it is that that separates those that pass that training and and those that are perhaps not suitable is it patience is it being calm with breathing you know what what, what do you need i don't really know what separates it i I do know that I can tell you from my own experience that the training for a spacewalk was was absolutely the most physically challenging thing I did as an astronaut. And, you know, you're in this suit that weighs 300 pounds, right? They try to get you as neutrally buoyant as possible in the pool, but, you know, your feet always want to go down, <laughs> which is not what you want it to do when you're crawling around in different ways on the station. Uh, you, you're in this pressurized suit where all of your movement is and, and work is done with your hands. And so you're working against not just the gloves themselves, but pressure inside the gloves. So every time you open or close your hands, your, your hands are working. And I, I kind of thought about it like, okay, the pleasure is the pain, right? <laughs> if, if I can be successful with this training, then I might have the opportunity to do a spacewalk for real. And I just had always imagined that that would be the surrealist part of surreal spaceflight, right? Everything about it is surreal, but to get it, to go out in your own personal spaceship and crawl around the station and do the work out there and, and to see earth, even through that little visor that way, I just imagined to be just amazing. And it was, um, 
it's it's interesting though. It is very challenging to do it. And unless really unless you felt like you were injuring yourself in some way, which you know has happened to people in the suit, you really had to had to push through it with a smile on your face. And I think that's what they're looking for is, you know, does this person have the attitude that would allow them to get through something challenging? And honestly, I believe everybody in the astronaut office does have that. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, you know. Some more than most. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I just think it's one of these things where it's probably, you know, a lot of people have um, maybe just a natural talent for it that some of us don't. Yeah. And, you know, the rest of us can train and get there. And then there's those that can train and can do it. But when you have to assign people to go out and do a spacewalk, you're going to, you know, you're going to choose the ones that, um, that you can trust will really make it happen. Well, let's hear from someone we interviewed, um, or I interviewed, I think this one, whose spacewalk or EVA didn't go entirely as planned. It's Issa's Luca Palmitano. Uh, In 2013, he almost drowned in space. Now, I interviewed him the following year during an Issa social in Berlin and asked him when he knew something was wrong. Well, the moment I felt the water in the back of my head that wasn't supposed to be there, that's when I thought it's it's time for me to call somebody on the ground and let them know that the suit is not performing as, as expected. And then what happened next? Well, then we we had to wait for a decision to come up because you have to understand that an EVA, it's a very complex procedure. Uh, there are people on the ground that have been planning for months uh, the choreography of the, the spacewalk, uh, if we are outside, it's because we need to be outside doing performing tasks. And so uh, before calling calling off an, an EVA, there, there has to be a, a, a very important reason. So at the beginning, it wasn't clear that it, it was potentially dangerous. We thought it, it was just a nuisance. Maybe it would be annoying and I might lose maybe uh, the sound because of water in my ear. But we didn't. nobody thought it was, it was going to be a, a problem. And when did you start to think this is a problem? At what stage? I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to be a problem when the water covered my eyes and my nose. (laughs) That's a bit bit of an understatement, isn't it? And had you ever, in your training, had any emergency procedure like this ever arisen? Because it's pretty unusual. Well, this was the first time it it ever happened, and uh, hopefully it will be the last time it ever happened. And so we had no idea that something like this could even happen. So we didn't have an emergency procedure for this sort of happening. However, we are trained to react to emergency procedures of a different nature that require our immediate um, re-entry inside the space station. So what is important in that case is to, to be able to navigate yourself and your suit safely back to, back to the, air, the airlock and that was what really saved my life, the fact that in, the instructors trained me on the ground, underwater, to know the spacecraft well, to be able to basically navigate in the blind because I wasn't able to see anything. I had water in my eyes and it was night, which in space, night means absolute darkness. What really saved my life is that the effort that comes before the flight from through the, the people that trained me, the people on the ground that called the EVA off even before it became a problem. Did you ever seriously think, this is it, This my last sight is going to be of the Earth from space? No, I never thought about that. I was more thinking, how, how, what can I do to save myself in emergencies, any kind of emergency, whether you're flying an airplane or floating in space or driving a car. 
I think that the best way to react is always to concentrate on the solution rather than the problem. Now, your mission, you saw a number of dockings while you were there and two spacewalks. What for you was your highlight? What did you take away from that period of time? I took away six months of spaceflight. And what appealed most? Six months the of spaceflight. <laughs> but the, the most amazing thing that we did up there was living, living in space living and working in, in an environment like the International Space Station. One thing that I always say is that we, for, we forgot how to wander, and we take something like the International Space Station for granted, but it's the biggest spacecraft ever built. It's bigger than anything I could ever imagine. It's up there, 400 kilometers, flying at 20,000 kilometers an hour, fully working with, with a crew of six people, five very modern labs, all in space, and it's there, and it's such a wonder that it's there. You say wonder, that's an interesting word to hear from an astronaut, because often you hear that the complaint, if you like, from astronauts is that they don't get the time to wonder, that they have so many experiments to do, because people sort of assume on the ground that you're up there looking out the window all the time. But actually, you're kept incredibly busy. Pretty much every minute is accounted for, isn't it? It is. We don't have a lot of free time, but I think that's fair. It's such a privilege that we have to pay back. And my personal approach was was that while I was in orbit, time did not belong to me. It belonged to the people that sent me up there, which is everybody. Because it's your taxes that pay for my flight. It's your your taxes that pay for, for what I'm doing up there, for the experiments, for the science, for the technology. So my time, as far as I'm concerned, belongs to you. So if I'm busy, then it it should be so. It should, I should be even busier. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I didn't mind working extra hours. And then whatever little time I had for free, I took the liberty to share it. And yeah, what, you were very active on um, Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, social media. What I discovered is that if you, if you take your time and then, and then share it with other people, then it looks like you have more time. Yeah, well, I'm one of your followers, so absolutely. Do you plan on flying again or is, is this it for you? I wish I could plan, but uh, it's, it really it's not something that, uh, that depends on us. If, if it were up to me, I'd, I'd be ready to fly again right away. I consider my mission right now to, to support the other astronauts, to fulfill my job as the ambassador of the Italian semester of the European presidency, and to, to do well in whatever assignment I get in the next years. I have a class of uh, six astronauts. They have all been assigned, and it's... Now it's their time. It's their time to shine, it's their time to perform, it's their time to have fun and to train. It's my job to support them. And finally, do you dream of space? Because most people, well, I say most people, it's probably most people I know (laughs) dream of being in space. I wouldn't say everybody does. But do you ever dream of it here down on Earth? I don't know how to answer that question because I don't remember my dreams. It plagues me, but... I really don't. I wake up in the morning and I have no idea what I dream during the night. Uh, but I wake up happy most mornings, and if I, I and I like to think that maybe it's because I've been dreaming about about space. Certainly, I I dream about going back. If there is such a thing as space sickness and it is hard to go back, then for me, it started the moment I opened that hatch back on the ground. 
Luca Palmatano. Now, he did go into space again. Uh, last year, in fact, he did several less traumatic spacewalks, including one to help repair the space station's alpha magnetic spectrometer. Um, incidentally, I'd, I didn't know this, Rich, until I looked it up. He became the first DJ in space last year as well during that mission because he actually played a set of electronic music for a music festival in Ibiza. I mean, that's that's pretty wild. I, I think that that's it's really interesting, isn't it, Nicole? Now that you know, there's kind of this this link, and astronauts are doing. You know, we've got the music in space. We've got uh, the first DJ in space. We've, we've had art. Yeah, we have art in Poetry. space. I mean, there's there's quite a lot to do, isn't it? I mean, particularly now with with social media, you kind of expect you can't just sit there and do your thing. You have to be whether you want to or not. You have to interact with the Earth. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing, actually. And and you're right, there's a lot going on otherwise, too. I, I mean, I think in some ways people get this idea that, oh, you're on the space station just floating around doing whatever you want. But it's busy up there. I mean, there is a lot of work going on. And so at the end of the day, when you can really chill a little bit, you want to, I don't know, just emotionally, mentally chill. And for for a lot of people, that's doing what they enjoy as a hobby down on earth. And in addition to having your face in front of the window, <laughs> enjoying the this beautiful work of art that's our planet. And um, it's a good thing that we have new ways to open up the communication about what's happening on the station with more and more people around the world. I am just so excited about it. And I'm really excited that you know, most of the astronauts and cosmonauts that that travel to the station now are are also interested in sharing it, right? You know, how could you not be? And to have this tool, whether it's you know social media or uh, doing like like Luca did some live engagement with uh, a festival on the ground, um, I think it goes beyond the art or the the picture that they're sending down. It becomes this connection for the people that they're they're speaking to and engaging with, and they become the ones that want the spot the station app on their phone so they can look and see and watch the station fly over knowing there's people on it representing 15 different countries that are working peacefully successfully there and they're probably more apt to figure out what science and work is happening there as well well that's a, a perfect introduction actually for our our next uh, astronaut um, particularly after it was in your 2009 mission that um, you and uh, Jeff Williams did the first ever NASA tweet up from space. Uh, but for some of the earlier astronauts, it, it wasn't always the case that they needed to tweet. The uh, British-born NASA astronaut Michael Fole, for instance, found that methods of communication changed during his six times in space. Six times in space, both on board Mir and the ISS. Here's Michael from our interview in 2017 when we were at Eztec in Nordvik in the Netherlands on how the changes affected him. Well, I certainly had to shift my behavior and, and expectations. On the Mir space station, there was 10 minutes a day. We didn't have downlink TV. And I was basically a very private and cut off from the world. In fact, I sometimes felt very isolated. Whereas on the International Space Station, my last flight, there's just two of us because it was right after the Columbia accident. I was being asked often to put on a TV just to watch myself. And it's like, why? <laughs> And so then, you know, you become self-conscious and uh, you, you don't want to scratch, you know, as spontaneously as one would otherwise. You don't want to, you know, if you're sneezing or whatever. Or... So all those things I found a bit odd, almost invasive. 
And uh, email, of course, was the new thing for me after Mir. And that took up so much time, just keeping in touch with family and friends, as well as work, that uh, it took away some of the fun of being in space where you have time to look out the window. Today, doing Twitter accounts, waiting for a slow internet connection, that has got to be very frustrating. Tim Peake always, has always said that if learning Russian, he finds, is most, probably the most difficult part of his astronaut training. But it's obviously an investment that is rewarding, particularly now when the Americans are dependent on, well, apart from <laughs> with SpaceX, etc., but they are dependent on the Russians to get back from the space station. One of the most positive things, and I can think of some negative things about the cooperation with Russia, uh, one of the most positive things probably the most positive thing about it is the redundancy in space transportation to the ISS. This huge investment by all these countries, up to, you know, 50, 100 billion, I don't know who counts it, but um, it's an awful lot of money, an awful lot of work by all these uh, 18 different countries. And when the Space Shuttle Columbia had its accident and uh, eventually led to the grounding of the Space Shuttle, it left the United States with only the Soyuz rocket to carry all astronauts and cosmonauts to the International Space Station. The Russians, in almost every other sphere of cooperation or competition with the United States, will take advantage of it and uh, put the United States in a bad position. They never did that with the Soyuz. They only cooperated. They only helped. Um, they made nothing difficult for the U.S., it's that cooperation, that strength in having the partnership that is really the value I think we find on the work, you know, on the surface of the Earth from a project like the International Space Station. And what about keeping the space station itself going? And there's a lot of talk at the moment of how it gets extended beyond 2024, which is the, the date everyone's, everyone's committed to. Personally, I am very concerned about the end of the International Space Station. Uh, the formal date is 2024. Every engineer, every manager, every person who's worked on it, astronauts, cosmonauts, we all think that the space station is such a, an enormously difficult challenge, uh, an achievement on the part of humanity, that it should continue. However, uh, budget um, within each of those space agencies um, is limited, and it doesn't change much. And the desire to go uh, back to the moon, uh, to go to Mars, these, these various projects compete for that money. And so for them to actually be able to say we can keep supplying the International Space Station with crews and cargo, um, food and, and supplies for repair, it's hard for them to claim they can do it. In fact, they cannot. And so there are, there are formal plans to deorbit the International Space Station in 2024. And the fuel is being launched year by year by Russia to fill up the tanks of the service module and the um, uh, FGB to enable the space station to be deorbited in 2024 by a Russian progress vehicle. That is the current plan, and I think it's a, um, a bad plan. I think it's a massive waste of um, a fantastic resource. But I understand there is a very limited amount of money to keep it going. To keep it going at the level that it's at now, I think, is definitely not going to happen. But I believe, and I've always been a fan of commercial space, as commercial space starts to find a market, and it hasn't got a good market yet, but as it starts to find a market and develop it, I'm hoping, and it's purely hope, that commercial space could come up with a business plan that allows parts of the International Space Station to be maintained in space without sinking it into the Pacific Ocean. 
Michael Fowl, and uh, he was talking about the end of the space station in 2024. That's, I mean, that's probably not going to be the case, but it's still not kind of nailed down, is it, Nicole? We we still don't really know what the future of, of the space station is going to be. What what do you think should happen to the space station? Well, I I think that we should um, carry on with it as long as we possibly can, and I think there's there's different ways that can happen. You know, as as the station as a whole. Uh, could be, you know, continue to be supported by NASA and ESA and the Russian Space Agency and JAXA and Canada, you know, as government uh, space agencies, bringing in more commercial activities as as possible. But it's probably more likely that one of these commercial companies will take it over. Or um, there are ways, I know it'll seem strange, but there are ways to separate modules and have, you know, have them become part of either independent stations or be the building blocks for new space stations. Um, I just think it's a resource that, that should be managed as long as we possibly can, right? Um, and we've learned so much from it that... Uh, I, I really do think it is this, and in so many ways, right? Not just the technical, you know, side of it, but just from the international relationship side of things, and uh, we've learned, and and the commercial side too. You know, as as people are anxious to to be able to use this this facility, uh, I think we've seen how more and more you can build on that for the future of 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 spaceflight exploration in low Earth orbit and, and beyond. Earlier on in the uh, podcast, um, Chris Hadfield had, had mentioned how he, he never looked back. He always looked forward. He, he wants to learn. He wants to do new things. It, is this how you feel? I wondered, is this why you set up this rather wonderful Space for Art Foundation? I think, you know, that the space exploration world, I think, is one of the, the most, most wonderful when it comes to this idea, like Chris said, of like always looking forward. What do we learn from her doing and, and how can we make that better? How can we continue to use this to improve life on Earth? And uh, I think the same is true when, you know, as an astronaut, I retired from being an astronaut, right? And was going to... Um, move on to some, you know, some new mission. To me, it had to be something that was equally or more beneficial than, than what I was doing already. And I, I don't know, it just felt really important to use the experience I'd had in space to build, to build that from. And of course, as a person who loves art as well, bringing space and art together were, um, seemed very natural <laughs> to me. And the opportunity to work with these children around the world and use the inspiration of space flight along with this healing power of art to allow them to think forward, right? To allow them to transcend what they were experiencing at the time and think about their own futures. I honestly, I didn't think it could get any better than that. Yeah. And, and where are you at the moment? Um, are you busy? Cause I know you had a summer deadline for lots of artwork around, um, uh, the world to come in to be part of a, of a, of another sort of spacesuit, um, that you make out of, of, of children's art. Um, what, what's the situation right now? Yeah. We have our, our current project, which is called Beyond. Uh, is going to be the the latest in the series of art spacesuits. And uh, the last one we completed exploration, we had children um, from hospitals and refugee centers in uh, like over 50 countries around the world participated. 
And for beyond, what we're hoping uh, is that we can collect artwork from kids in every country on the planet. And we've opened it up. We're not just um, working with children in hospitals and refugee centers now. We, With this whole pandemic going on, we know that everyone is feeling isolated in some way. And so we want kids to be able to participate from everywhere. And so we extended the summer deadline. <laughs> we're, you know, we're actually, we're, we'll collect art um, for as long as we need to, um, at least through the end of the year uh, and, and, and perhaps beyond <laughs> for the beyond suit, uh, because we really would like to represent the, the planet, you know, represent um, earth as a planet, part of the whole uh, mission of the, of this uh, art space suit is to really get kids thinking about the fact that they live on a planet, that they share it with all these other children and they are the earthlings. And what we talked about before, you know, this idea of the only border mattering is that thin blue line of atmosphere and, you know, help bring it all back to earth. All of this work we do in space, bring it back to earth and have them be a part of it. That's lovely. Thank you so much, uh, Nicole. Nicole Stott, uh, for joining us. That's a, a really beautiful insight into um, space, the space station, as as well as with our nice all-star astronaut selection to celebrate 20 years of a human presence on the International Space Station. And that's Space Boffins. We're supported by the UK Space Agency and more about the UK and space next time. All your comments welcome, of course. Do please review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, as you've listened to us so far, you actually do like the podcast. Please say that. Uh, and thanks for listening. <laughs>